The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. It's good to be here. We have been in a long series on Acts. This story is really applicable. Sometimes, I'm, sometimes I get into these passages and it's like, man, it's just so ancient and different and how do I draw this into our day to day? And this passage is, in my view, it's like a greased slide. You just get on this baby and it takes you right into where we need to go. It is an amazing passage. The scene is intense and weird, but I think that we will see in the crowds something very similar to what we do, although I don't generally take bulls around and offer them to people, but you know, we do something similar in principle. So I want to start with a couple questions and then lead us through this passage because I think I don't know, there's something going on today uh, that's really worth paying attention to, and I think this can help us fix a problem that we have. So here's my first three questions. What are you willing to do to be okay in this world? You say to yourself, where am I at? Where do I feel incomplete? What do I not have accomplished? Whatever it is that I say, say, do you feel okay right now? I think most of us would say, well, I guess okay. But I don't mean okay like generally all right. I mean like I'm at peace. I feel complete. What would you do to find that sort of feeling? What are you willing to give, do, etc., to be okay in this world? What are you willing to sacrifice? What are you willing to give? I look at my life and I feel this automatic sense of incompleteness. Like I'm just about okay, but there's something more I need to do. What else do I need to do? Well, there's something more that I need. So there's a couple different ways you could look. I remember earlier in my life I thought I am, and I was taught this by my churches, uh, as a single man I'm an incomplete person. And so I really, really need to have a spouse to experience the fullness of life, etc. And that early on was just a deep, deep desire, but also uh, this, this sense of I'm not quite there yet. I'm like a halfway person. I don't think I'm the only person in this room who's felt that. Okay, so it's kind of like I'm thinking when I have that intimate relationship with a spouse, I will be better. I'll be okay. Uh, I think another one is resources. So maybe land, possessions, we can just go cold cash. I'm, I'm kind of okay, but my goodness, if I had a piece of land, I'm sick of renting. I want a piece of land to own, then I'll be better. That will be a better life. I'll be more complete or I do have some of my debts paid down, but I wish I had them all gone and I had no more need to worry about money at all, then I w- that would be okay. You know, we all look to the Hollywood people and just see nothing but contentment and bliss, you know. They're okay, they've got it, they have arrived. And then another one would be control or power. I have this cancer in me and it's, and it's out of my control. But if I could control it and eradicate it, then I would be okay. Or maybe it's a relationship that I have with somebody else. They just don't get it. They're just not seeing it. And if, if they would just do things the way I do, then I, then I personally could finally be okay. Because until I have control over that person, I'm not quite complete. I'm unsettled. I'm dissatisfied. I need something more. Sometimes I think we end up thinking that 
If I were to have a dynamite, intimate bond with my spouse, and if I had good land or a place to live and all the food and the shelter and the cash that I need, or if I was in control of my health and my work and my home and my everything, then I'm going to be really okay. I hate not being in control. So I'll do just about anything. I'll sacrifice just about anything to either be in control or at least to feel like I'm in control. Notice that those are three major draws which are spoken about, I suspect, in every single book of the Bible. All the way through, human beings are just bound to be drawn to intimate bonding, sex, marriage, but we're drawn to that, money, possessions, and power. It's just so innately something we feel we need more of all of those to be okay. From the very first days of creation to this Sunday, right now, we human beings have struggled with this idea. We're not yet complete. This was Satan in the Garden of Eden when he came to Adam and Eve and he said, don't you guys want to be like God. Now, I always think of that right away through the lens of I feel sinful and shameful all the time and I want to be like God so that I feel not so, I feel good morally. I think about it through a moral lens. There was no immorality in the garden at that point. There was no, they didn't even know what that was. Satan was tempting them with the notion that although God created all the heavens and the seas and everything in it, and it was good, Satan says, yeah, it's good, but God wants you to be like him. He wants you to be complete like him, and you're incomplete because you haven't tasted that fruit, and when you taste the fruit, then you will be okay. And they say, oh, it's probably got some weight to it, snake man. Thank you, you know. It's just, and then that, so the original sin is believing the lie that God's creation isn't good enough, and his bondedness to you isn't good enough. You need something more. That's the sin. And the thing that you need more of, in this case fruit, or whatever else we've just described, that becomes the idol. Once I have that, then I'll be okay. That is where my eyes and soul and heart are fixed on. We've been very creative in this world us humans. We've developed intricate ways to get what we want and need from this world. Think about agriculture for a second. We have great systems. I just drove through Southern California. It's amazing. The, the irrigation systems to bring water into all this arid land and then make it into huge orchards. Orchards and groves and fruit. It's just incredibly lush. And I think about the agriculture guys who are like, we made this. <laughs> you know? We bent the pipes, we dug the ditches, we ran the water, we created all this stuff for us. We've done what we need, we've given it all to get what we need. At the harvest party that we have this time of year to celebrate the harvest, it's a, it's a joy that I feel from this abundance that I have created by really setting things up really well. I feel more complete now than I once did. Let's have a party. I worked really hard. I earned this orange. I earned that water that goes onto my land through the pipes. My dad always taught me, and he drilled this into my head, nothing in this world is free, son. You know, nothing is free. It's, and it's, it's got some weight to it. It really wove into, a, into my mind. So nothing is free, so if I have things, I have done what I needed to do to get them. It's just how we work. It's how we think. But it's interesting. The farmer who's just a genius at irrigating this, this land and growing great crops, he didn't actually create water, did he? Or the metal that the pipes are made out of. There's so much of that whole system that's well beyond his or her control. That's where Paul is starting to open a door for these guys, and we've seen it as Mackenzie read it already, but I want to get back into the story now. 
We're going to actually start a little bit earlier, and then we'll come down through this moment where all these people see these teachers telling them about a God who loves them and has completed a relationship with them, and we'll see how they respond. But let's back it up to the first verse in chapter 14, and I want to I look at the first paragraph there the, as, as we get into it. There's something here that I think that's really worth paying attention to. Um, the same thing, he says in verse 1, happened in Iconium. The same thing is the same thing that we've seen already in the previous chapter. So um, they come into a town and go and they preach the gospel, and then people respond in very different ways, all right? So that same thing is happening here again in Iconium when Paul and Barnabas went into the Jewish synagogue and they spoke in such a way that a large group of both Jews and Greeks believed. Okay, so pretty compelling, apparently, in their speech. They spoke powerfully. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. That's pretty strong persecution. So they stayed there for a considerable time, speaking out courageously for the Lord, who testified to the message of his grace, granting miraculous signs and wonders to be performed through their hands. So the Lord grants them miraculous signs and wonders just in case anybody's wondering if these guys are legit. And, and, and they see them do this miraculous sign, and they say, huh, they must be legit. So that's a blessing from God, that's good. But the population of the city was still divided. Some sided with the Jews and some sided with the apostles. When both the Gentiles then and the Jews, together with their rulers, made an attempt to mistreat them and stone them, okay, that's bad. That's taking them outside the city, beating them down with rocks, often beating them to death. So they kind of hear, hey, they're kind of gunning for you. They've heard about this. Uh, verse 6 Paul and Barnabas learned about it, and they fled. They got out of there and ran to the Laconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and the surrounding region. Interesting. And then they were more careful and cautious so they wouldn't rile people up because that's the worst thing ever to do. And then they stayed quiet and obedient to the law. No. Verse 7. They continued to break the law. Even though the rulers above them who were appointed by God told them not to, they said, no, we're going to actually escape. We're not going to seek your punishment, and we're going to go and keep preaching the gospel. We'll save that for another day, but just let that register a little bit. I think that's important. They continued to proclaim the euangelion, the gospel. They were evangelizing. Okay, I want to do a little side note here. Because this is interesting. You tell me, you're looking at Paul and Peter and they're walking through this world preaching the gospel. Would you, would you say it is more intense and crazy or sort of predictable and bland? You know, it's intense and crazy everywhere they go. They're like, uh, hey, you guys preached, you gave that talk, they want to kill you with rocks now. <laughs> you know, that's a really dramatic response. So we see in the Acts story this up and down, high highs and low lows, this really adventurous sort of story playing out. And it's, and it's interesting because I don't feel that way today in, in church life. I don't feel like we have that. Here's what I mean. I drove with my family this summer from Portland out to out east, out to the Midwest, have you ever driven from Portland, maybe all the way out east, or at least out toward the Midwest, all right? It's better driving back than it is driving out, <laughs> right? Because when you're driving back, you're coming back through all that flat, boring, nothing land, and then it starts to get real pretty and hilly and structured and all of that. So here, you're going up through the gorge, and it's just majestic, and then it's just a tapering down of coolness all the way until you get to North Dakota. I, Isaac, I'm sorry, wherever, yeah. Isaac here is from North Dakota. I told him on the front end, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bash on Nodak a little bit today. But you get out there and it's just flat. 
Out here, I remember Allie one time saying, Allie's my wife, she says, look at that. And we look up on the hillside and there's these mountain goats. Man, and they're so sure-footed on the cliff's edge. And you're like, <gasps> you know, it's just it's, it's, it's exciting. And you get out to North Dakota and it's just, <laughs> you know, cows just hanging out, munching and mooing and sleeping on flat land. It's boring. It'd fall asleep. The only thing that's exciting about driving across North Dakota is trying to stay awake. That's thrilling. Oh, my goodness. Well, here's what I think. I think we've grown up in a society where Christian life, going to church on Sundays and so forth, is by and large pretty respectable. It's pretty respectable. I know it's, I said by and large. I think that's changing. It's becoming less respectable. But every one of us is still coming up in that world. You don't find a lot of people getting persecuted. People aren't stirring up and poisoning our minds against us. Many of you are like, yes, they are. Look at the internet. That's true. It's happening. But not like we see here. This is an intense persecution that's happening. So we don't see the same kind of persecution. We don't, also, we don't see signs and wonders like this. I don't see people running down my street screaming, God healed me! Jumping for joy, exuberant, praising the Lord because he We just don't see that kind of stuff. If we do, we're like, dude's crazy. So it kind of feels like we're in the middle of North Dakota, kind of grazing, waking, sleeping, grazing, moving. I think we need to be thinking about this. What is the route that we're driving along in our Christian life that has brought us into eating and sleeping, never really doing anybody any harm, never really getting excited? You know, that's what we say. We're, I'm, <laughs> you might misread that to say, we've got to start harming people more. Come on. I don't mean that. I'm just saying, like, we're not creating a stir. Nobody's really, you know, it's just this sort of blasé blandness. What's happening? Compared to the adventure that I see here, we're just maintaining sometimes rather than truly getting out to the ends of the earth to share this gospel in a way that so dramatically impacts real human beings' lives that they can't, they can't not respond one way or the other. Sometimes we water it and soften it down so much that it's just blandness. I wanna, we are Columbia River Gorge Christians, Yeah? No offense, we can be North Dakota Christians too, but I want to say, I want us to be in that spot of adventure. This is a great adventure, and it's real hard sometimes, that's the low, low, but it's really exciting at times too when we're on mission with Jesus. I think the New Testament gives us a picture of a community that's really on mission, and it's anything but boring, all right? They're about to get stoned by this crowd, and they bail. And they bail because they want to keep going. They don't want to get stopped. That's really cool. It's the, the, if we engage with the kind of ministry we see Paul and Peter doing, I think we're talking about a deep, a deep adventure. And if you say, man, my Christian life is anything but adventurous, just pause for a couple days and meditate on that. That's not a place of shame and guilt, like, oh, I'm a bad Christian, not doing enough. Just kind of say, Maybe there's more to the story than the way I've perceived it, all right? Okay. Well, they were speaking courageously for the Lord, Luke tells us, who testified to the message of his grace. That's why he gave them those miracles to do. So the Lord has a message, and it's a message of giving, grace, gift, charis. It's a message of I have given myself to you. That's what they're proclaiming. This Jesus gave himself to us. He's the fulfillment of all of Israel's promises. It's a big deal. Let's pick it up again now in verse 8. In Lystra sat a man who couldn't use his feet. He was lame from birth, who had never walked. And this man was listening to Paul as he was speaking. When Paul stared intently at him, and he saw that he had faith to be healed, he said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. You know, you can see it in the crowd. There's this guy looking at him. Paul locks eyes with him. 
And right then, the man leaps up, and he starts walking. All right, that's awesome. This reminds us of Jesus. Jesus coming in, healing, making these big moves. People are watching. The guy jumps up. He's healed. This is really cool. This was given by the Lord so that the message of God could be completed. Now we are uh, confirmed. And now we see Paul. <laughs> and, and Paul is, do, you know, bouncing is what Tiggers do best. Healing people and preaching the gospel is what Paul's do best. Like, this is his jam. This is what he's doing. He's stoked. It seems to be working. For him, it's all about helping people see that because of the finished work in Jesus, they are okay. Would they live and accept Jesus? He has completed a perfect bond between the creator and the created. We're okay. That's his message. And now Luke just throws down the thickest irony you can possibly imagine. Go watch what happens. Verse 11. So, you know, the crowds all heard this great message. They saw the miracle. So when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Wow! They're totally stoked. This is awesome. He said something about something, whatever. He's the God. They began to call Barnabas Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. All right, uh, Zeus probably had, or, sorry, Barnabas probably had like a sort of regal quality to him, I think, you know. He was, he was the dude, and then here comes, uh, Paul is the speaker. Hermes was the messenger of Zeus in the folklore, so, so they're like, well, he's the one talking, so he must be Hermes. Now the priest catches wind of this, verse 13. He's the priest of the temple of Zeus, and he's located just outside the city, and he says, get the bulls, boys. The gods have come. So he grabs the bulls. They grab these garlands, flowers, and uh, probably cotton, not cotton, wool. And he gathers the crowds, and they come to Paul and Barnabas, and they desperately want to offer sacrifices to them, the people. That's very interesting. Why? Why are they doing this? Why are they willing to give this to these guys? Well, I think because Paul has shown the crowds that he has what it takes to make people okay, to give them what they need, healing, power, Control. Look at, he can control what we can't. Look at, he gives what we need. Health. He can fix us. And what do we instinctively do when we find somebody who we perceive, or maybe something, we find someone or something whom we perceive can make us okay, and what do we instinctively do? There's nothing in this world that's free, right? They're giving something good that I need, so we instinctively need to pay for it, or work for it, or earn it, or do what it takes to get it. Get the bulls, get the garlands. The gods have arrived. They've got what we need. All we have to do is what we need to do to get it. It's crazy because this is just the thing. <laughs> it's just the exact thing Paul is, is saying, don't do that anymore. He's like, hey, God is super gracious to you and loves you and gives to you freely so you don't have to work for his approval. And they're like, awesome, let's work for his approval. You notice how Paul comes in the name of Jesus and the hearers of the message jammed Paul's message into their own understanding of the world. Thanks for the Jesus message, but I know how the world works, so I'm going to keep it kind of and just uh, fit it into my worldview. He's coming to say there's one God, right? Not Zeus and Hermes and a bunch of other ones. There's one God. His name is Jesus. I want to tell you about him. 
And they hear him and they say, ooh, yeah, yes, we get it. You're talking about Zeus and his powerful sidekick Hermes. Oh my gosh, is it really you, Hermes? Mm, This is good. No, not at all. (laughs) That's awesome, Hermes. (laughs) I'm not Hermes at all. You look so good, Hermes. Hey, everybody. Come around. We'll see how good he looks. He can help us. And then, bam, right then, right after Paul lays this down, they hear the message. This procession pops up. It's in response to the miracle. These guys' way of worshiping was to party, to eat, and sacrifice. That's just how, that's the pagan god worship. We throw celebrations. We eat lots of, we sacrifice animals. We eat the meat. It was, they were ramping up for a rager. I mean, this is a big deal. They're, the gods have come. You have all kinds of inscriptions right around this, this spot that tell us that this arena, this area where Paul is speaking, there was a legend that actually Zeus and Hermes had already come prior in the form of human beings, and then they had passed away, or there weren't, we have these pictures, and so there's a bunch of theories about why they were connecting them to Zeus and Hermes, but that was part of this whole culture that they were in. They had a whole lot banking on those two gods, and they believed that they were really important to them. So this is a big deal. It's like the long-awaited people they've been waiting for are now here. It's almost like a mini distorted messianic thing, you know? You're here to save us. We've been waiting for you. They're like, no, that's not us. And it's serious. They have garlands, these flowers and wool, the oxen. This is exactly what Paul has said you don't need to do. Thinking that you can be made okay by another human being other than Jesus, the one true God, is not smart. It just isn't rooted in reality. You end up spending your life doing a ton of really great-looking stuff that is actually totally irrelevant. It doesn't help you. Perhaps it helps periodically for several years, but that's about it. What a tragedy. What a tragedy that is. You say, what would I do to be okay? And you start to think about what we do. Oh, just think about that. What we sacrifice. I struggle sometimes thinking about what, I, what kind of relationship I could have with my son and daughter if I wasn't desperate to be okay? How much time am I not spending with them because so much is more important for me to accomplish and achieve and lock down so I can feel safe and in control? I sacrifice relationship with my children. I sacrifice relationship with my mom, or my my mom, my dad, my wife, my people. What am I chasing? I was in high school. You have to make money when you're in high school if you want to go to college. So I worked for a guy named Bob Sturgis. Bob Sturgis was big bucks. He started a sporting goods store in the Midwest. In his living room was a chair that used to be owned by George Washington. All right? So the Smithsonian was waiting for Bob to die because in his will he donated George Washington's chair to the museum. You know, it, it was a cool room, and Bob was a hunter, so he went on safari three times a year. Safaris can cost like 100 grand plus. He lived in Lake Forest, Illinois, which is more wealthy than Hollywood per capita. It was a beautiful home, bright, shiny caddy, nice Land Rover, all this vacationing, all these possessions, tremendous amounts of exorbitantly wonderful lifestyle, and 100% of his life was paid for on the interest earned off of what he really had in the bank, all right? This was a big money guy, Bob was. He hired me to paint his fence with Thompson's water sealer. And I'd sit and hang out with Bob. And he was hollow. His sons had disowned him. His family was broken, divorce, shattered, totally isolated man. He worked and chased, he sacrificed and saved. He did all that it took to appease the money God, to get that security and that safety, and he got it. Bob never had to worry about money. 
There was never going to be a bill that came in that he might not be able to pay. He had what so many of us long for, but he had to sacrifice almost all of his life to get it. To get that good sense of completion. I'm okay. I have what I wanted. He had to give it all up. He had to, and then once he had it, he had to obsessively protect and care for that fortune. It was it, it owned him. And it became his precious. I think it's the same with these guys in Lystra that Paul's talking to. Their system of worshiping pagan gods was rigorous. You know, you, you were living in your world. I, I traveled in Nepal two different times uh, doing missionary care for some missionaries there. And as I walked through the Kathmandu, which is deeply steeped in Hinduism and Buddhism, there's, I mean, you can't go from here to the back door there without passing by some neighborhood shrine. And all throughout, the, every single everywhere are gods and statues, and they're just all over the place. And so your mindset is, my best shot in this world is keeping all of these different gods appeased. And you never quite know where they're at. I remember going into the slums, and there was a, a fellow that came up, and, and his, his brother is there with pus and flies in his ear and belly bloated and it's filth and squalor everywhere. You can tell there's no money whatsoever. And he opens his bag and he shows me this orange. It's a beautiful orange, healthy, I'm sure filled with vitamin C and all kinds of nutrients that the children need. He says, come with me, come with me. And I follow him through the slum and we cross over these two by fours and come to this smaller little hut. And he peels back the tarp and I have to duck down and we get into it. And all around, hundreds and hundreds of children starving to death. And we get into that thing right down in there and open it up. And there's these little LED Christmas lights, you know, the battery-powered kind, all around this shrine to probably Shiva or somebody. And he lays that orange right down and there's bananas and oranges and fruits and herbs piled all up on this shrine. And, that, and I talked with him about Jesus, and he loved Jesus, absolutely, because why wouldn't he? We love all the gods. And if you're telling me about him, his whole world was constantly, day to day, just wanting to appease and be careful and not make the gods angry, you know? That's their life. That's a heavy way of living. Is it that different than the way I spend my week? Do I have enough money in the bank account? I gotta say that to that person. That person still doesn't even, I don't know what to do about. Think about your day today. Do you ruminate and bask in the knowledge that your life is okay with Jesus for all of eternity and nothing of value can be taken from you ever because God creates all? Or do we live more terrified it's all on the wire. If I don't pass the test, if I don't get that, if it doesn't happen, <gasps> it's an amazing thing. And here comes Paul. He says, you guys, you need to know that the one true God is the one who created the world and everything in it. He's the one who's been giving you rain all along. Every single drop. Well before you said thank you to him, well before you did something for him. This whole time he's been giving you rain. Can you imagine how freeing it would be for my old boss, Bob Sturgis, to truly grasp that all of the safety and the control that his mountain of money afforded him was actually totally irrelevant. It was unnecessary. Jesus was the one who made him safe. Jesus is the creator, which meant that he could enjoy being created, which means he doesn't have to try to be God. <laughs> I mean, isn't that often what we're doing? We're either trying to be God or we're trying to make physical people and physical things into God's. The message of Jesus says, you don't have to do that. How freeing would it be 
for him to recognize that he did not need to protect his money from his family members or from other people, that he could give it generously and freely. It wasn't something that owned him. It wasn't something that he owned because all is the Lord's because he created it. Most importantly, what if he could have believed truly that the small bits of real true goodness, now you got to differentiate this in your own head. There's a difference between fleeting happiness and real goodness, the good. It's a question that the philosopher's been asking forever. What is the good life? I'm going to suggest to you that if you've tasted the good, it has come from the God, the one true God, real true good. I don't mean fleeting happiness. If Bob Sturgis was able to look at that and say, I have experienced real goodness. Maybe he experienced goodness when he first saw his boy, when he was born. That was a gift from God. He tasted it. And it wasn't because Bob had done a bunch of great stuff. It was a gift or a grace. He might have made an irrigation pipe, yes, but he didn't make the water or the metal that created the pipe. We can do things with the world, but we don't create. Probably one of the most, if I think the most important line in all of the entire Bible is the first one. God created. What if Bob had known that he could give up the money God and the power God and instead receive the God of goodness freely? What a wonderful thing. Instead, he forced the gospel message into his own understanding of the world. And even though the gospel message indirectly said, money won't help you experience the good, it won't make you okay, this was impossible for him to believe. That just can't be the case. We see that in the New Testament elsewhere with the rich young ruler. He comes up, he says, how do I enter the kingdom of God? And more or less the answer is, you're not going to be able to do that if you keep chasing your cash. So give that away, and that's going to be your first step to actually getting this thing. I think in both the rich young ruler and the fellow I've been describing, they divinized money. They actually turned money into a deity. They saw that money could give them something that really only God can. So they tried to make it into money. These guys in the crowds are forcing the gospel message into their own understanding of pagan and idol worship. And so they said, you human beings, Paul and Barnabas, you're going to be the ones who can meet the needs that we have most. And that means that we need to sacrifice to you because nothing is free. And that means you will save us. Save us. You know, they're stoked about that. It's an amazing thing. Here's a quote from N.T. Wright. I like N.T. Wright. He says, it is remarkable what can happen to a message when the hearers insist on inserting it firmly into their own worldview. We can take the message of Jesus and really mess it up by, by forcing it into what we already know. We talked about that last week. That's why one of the characteristics of being a Christian is being crucified putting to death what you used to know and taking on what you know and believe from Jesus. One of the things that the passage highlights is the almost bottomless pit of potential misunderstandings that awaits anybody who tries to speak the gospel message. You start to, you, you're like, we're the same in this where you say, man, I want to tell people about the gospel, but every time I even say the word gospel or church, they think all kinds of stuff that I don't want them to think. Oh my gosh, there's so much baggage. It's just crazy the way it's gotten to 2018. This is not 2018. <laughs> this is right in the middle of the first century. They had all the same baggage back then. The beautiful thing, if you can see it, is Luke is telling us a story about how the gospel punches through all that stuff we're afraid of punches through all those misunderstandings. For 2,000 years, the gospel message has been wrongly interpreted and misdirected and totally distorted, and yet here we are today finding life in Jesus still. That ought to wake us up to how powerful the gospel is. 
But man, when we try to, to mix it up in the way these guys are, the confusion comes, and it comes from divinizing what ought not be. Asking from human beings or from things what only God can give. Do you ever do that? I see a bunch of places where this happens in my life. Maybe you'll relate. I think it happens with our spouses or those whom we date. We divinize them. Or the law. How many times do you see throughout the week the notion that if we can just tweak our laws the right way, justice will pour out on the land? You know, that's dumb. It is just the most foolish thing, and it doesn't mean we shouldn't be engaged with creating laws and being a part of the system in that way, but at the same time, the idea that if we can just tweak our legal system just right, then we will experience the good. I would challenge that. Maybe we divinize doctors. Maybe we divinize presidents and governors and mayors it's so interesting. Verse 14. Paul and Barnabas have an opportunity here to say, they love us. We could score. That happens a lot with, with uh, leaders. They see a crowd that wants to follow them as gods. You know, that's a big deal. That happened to C-3PO once in the, in the uh, what are those? They're not Wookiees. What are the little ones? Ewoks. Yeah, all right. All right, verse 14. This will be the last bit. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard about it, they tore their clothes. They're like, no! I'm going to start doing that for you guys when I'm angry. I'm going to rip my shirt. It'll be awesome. Men, why are you doing this? We, too, are people. We're human beings. We're of the same nature as you. Don't divinize us. We're, we're not different than you, and believe us, we cannot make you okay. We can't make you whole. Yes, we can do this healing, but it's really Jesus who did the healing, which is kind of the point, you know? We are proclaiming the good news to you so that you should turn away from, not try to draw us into your nonsense, turn away from that stuff, which is worthless, and turn to the living God, the God who made the earth, the sea, and everything that is in them. Verse 16, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to go their own ways. Kind of like he allowed the nations to do what they wanted to do. Verse 17, parentheses, I'll insert, and even though they did whatever they want, which was by and large not what God wanted, yet he did not leave himself without a witness by doing good. He wanted always to leave something in their life that showed them there was more to life than what they thought. And how did he do that? By giving them rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying you with food and your hearts with joy. You guys had those harvest parties? That joy you felt? It, it was from me. There's no way you know how to make apples. You can make irrigation, you can do all that, but I send the water, and I make the miracle of an apple seed growing into a tree that produces a thousand more apples. That's not on you, and I've been doing it this whole time, and you haven't been earning it, and you haven't been sacrificing it, so now, if you can recognize that, men and women and children, you will be free in this gospel. It's a beautiful message that Paul is giving him. Verse 18, even by saying all of this, Paul and Barnabas are preaching it to them, the crowds were scarcely persuaded to not offer sacrifice to them. It is so hard to receive that message. I think we see here just the first baby step toward maybe later on they got it a little bit better. But you could just feel them like, okay, uh, you're saying I don't need to do this. this uh, they just barely were able to keep them from making sacrifices to them. Even while folks were nowhere near doing what was right or what was good or even acknowledging that God existed, God was blessing them with grace. 
showing them his kindness. And now, Paul and Barnabas are coming and saying, that great blessing was a foretaste. It helped you to see the kind of God that we have seen fully in Jesus. And this is a God who not only gives us the blessings I just described, but he actually gives us more. And he fixes that deep, ultimate death problem. And he makes us okay. God said after he created, it is good. Jesus said after he died, it is finished. There's a completeness that comes through God alone. What do we divinize today? I said already, marriage and dating. You get really, really, really upset with your spouse if you're going to your spouse thinking, I, I can't be okay unless they do something for me. That's consuming your spouse rather than gracing. And it messes things up because you're asking your spouse or your dating partner to be in a place that no human being should be in. Think about that. Do you divinize your spouse? Do we divinize our doctors? We have this belief that if we study hard enough and do enough research, we'll ultimately be able to eradicate all disease. So we go into the hospitals pretty confident that our doctors are going to actually save us. And we either, when you divinize them and you think, boy, if you do what I so desperately need, then I'll be okay. We love them and see them as gods until they can't. And then what are they? Devils. We demonize them. They're bad male practice. They didn't do what they were supposed to. We do that with church leaders too, I think. I've heard that that happens. There's jobs and our bosses and our income. We divinize all that stuff. We start to think, we start to think, oh my goodness, if only my boss would be, you see what I'm doing here? You can, I don't even need to do this much more. I think you can go down this road on your own and say, what is it that I'm actually giving my life over to and trusting is going to make me all right? I've, I've mentioned already law and government. We think if we vote the right person in or get the right statues or ordinances observed or whatever, we'll be okay. And all of a sudden, we spend 50 times more each week watching cable news and complaining on the internet than we do inviting a neighbor over for tea and saying, you matter. God made you. And he made you an infinite miracle. And he made me an infinite miracle too. Let's be miraculous together, right? That's so different than trusting that if we all just do enough, it's gonna work. When you divinize that kind of stuff, you're always bummed. I got a buddy named Zach I used to blog with and he posted on his Facebook this week. He said, I am tired of being mad about everything. He's a, he's a real feisty dude, you know. One of these guys who's got a beef with everything in the world. And he says this week, I'm tired of being mad about everything. I can't conquer the world. My own heart is hard enough. I see a whole generation sinking, divinizing government and law and sinking, if we just do it right, it'll, we'll, we'll be okay. And what does that create? Perpetual dissatisfaction, because those things are not actually fixes. So the gospel message is an invitation to rest, and I'll leave it with you at that place today. It's an invitation to rest, to actually believe those words of Jesus on the cross. It is finished. The things you're terrified of losing, I want you to think about why you're so afraid of losing them. Because behind that is my promise that I will renew and restore every single thing in this world that is good. And all that is corrupt and evil and broken, I will eradicate. I will do that, says Jesus. I want you to be with me. I will make you complete and okay. This is another way to think about it. To make it personal between you and Jesus. Sometimes you hear this language like, hey man, don't take it personal, right? And I thought about, I heard Dally and I were watching a TV show this week and I heard somebody say that and it just registered with me. It's like, hey, don't take it so personally. And I thought about that and it's like, yeah, there's something to it. Don't take this too far because it's, it's a weird analogy in some ways, but think about this. 
I have a friend, and we have some kind of disagreement on whatever, and we can disagree and go about our lives for Jesus in a really beautiful and really truly loving way. But to the degree I look at that friend of mine in a divinized way, like I can only, I get my being and my okayness, what's all right, from that person. Now if we disagree with them, oh my gosh, they're taking away my life, and now it gets real personal. And I almost feel like Jesus is saying that depth of, of relationship is really reserved for you and me only. And if you get really personal with Jesus and you know that he's totally trustworthy, he'll never betray you, he'll never hurt you, he'll never do anything, you become much more solid in who you are. And now you can love people much more freely because, because you're not trying to make them into gods. It's an amazing thing. And there was a great, great leader in the church who used to preach right here in this room. And he used different language than getting personal with Jesus. He said, you need to fall in love with the Savior. That's a beautiful message. And we need to recover it for today. We gotta stop falling in love with the world and the, and the, and the lawyers and the bank accounts and all the stuff that we've attached our hearts to is ripping our hearts apart and we roll through each week exhausted and terrified while Jesus says, find refreshment and peace in me. And so I encourage you in the same words as the founder of this church. Well, the founder of this church is Jesus Christ. But in 1931, a guy named John Mitchell got this local church going. And he used that language a lot. Fall in love with the Savior. Think about who you love. Stop divinizing things and people. That's for Jesus only and you'll find peace and rest and an ability to love people the way Jesus does. Pray with me. Father, we love you deeply, and it's just so shallow still compared to how much you love us and this world that you made. And I ask that through your spirit you would build our hearts out to reflect yours, remodel them, restore them, restore them so that we can attach our hearts to you, so that we can find being okay and complete and whole in you. And then we can live in really strong and courageous ways in this world knowing that we have nothing to lose. We can count everything else around here as loss as we pursue a robust life, a full life, a joyful life with you. You are great and greatly to be praised and we love you. Amen. We desire to be formed by the Word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.